0: This is the Monitoring and Evaluation Boost with Godfrey Sinkaba. Every week, we share tips and practical stories to help you master the monitoring and evaluation job and perform it to your best. If you haven't yet, please take a moment to hit that subscribe button so you're automatically updated about new episodes. And that way, you can continue to grow your M&E career every day. It also helps to show your support to this podcast and improve its ranking on the platform. We really appreciate that effort. Now, let's get started.
1: Hello everyone. My name is Godfrey Senkava, your host, Monitoring and Evaluation Boost. Episode 9 from Earth Museum Exhibitions to Leading Program Evaluations. Patricia Moore, Sheffer's Inspiring Career Path Story. Today's guest, Dr. Sheffer. Dr. Sheffer is the Deputy Director of Research and Analysis for the National Endowment for the Arts in Washington, D.C. During the past 10 years, she has served as an evaluator in other federal government positions, including as evaluation manager for NASA's. Office of Education, and a program examiner for the Office of Management and Budget. She has led over 40 program evaluations, ranging from national evaluation studies conducted for federal agencies, including the Library of Congress and the President's Committee for the Arts and the Humanities, to smaller-scale research and evaluation studies for the state education agencies and school districts. She served on the STEM evaluation federal interagency working groups in kindergarten to grade 12 education convened by the Obama White House administration prior to her career in evaluation she was an art educator in museums across the United States and her native country of Canada Dr Sheffer earned a PhD in education policy planning and leadership at the College of William and Mary and she has a master of arts in curriculum studies at the University of Toronto Dr Sheffer you're welcome thank
2: you very much glad to be here today
1: Indeed Dr Sheffer I've been following up your work and personally, when I joined the Washington Evaluators, I was glad that you were my mentor. And during those conversations that we had, however brief they were, I was really energized and I was motivated to think more in the direction of evaluation, especially evaluability assessments, because that's the topic we discussed at length. Over the years, you've continued to mentor so many people and actually inspire many. And very recently, you're even our leader in Washington Evaluators. But we'd like to know more about you and understand the soft side of Dr. Sheffer. And this podcast is one of the opportunities of getting to know evaluators' lives and try to connect them to their present. Help understand more about yourself, your childhood, your youthhood, and how you landed your first job.
2: Sure. And I guess I don't have a traditional story as an evaluator. I'll say that to to begin with. I really didn't take a straight career path to be where I am today. And yet somehow where I am now, um, in the middle of my 50s, seems like the right spot for me. And let me explain. So today I I work in national arts policy and research. As you mentioned, I'm deputy director of research and analysis at the National Endowment for the Arts. Um, But when I was born, the community I I lived in, nobody would have suggested to me that that's where I would end up. So I grew up in a working class family in a small Canadian town. I did well in school. And by high school, most, most of my teachers were saying, you should think about college. But neither of my parents really knew much about college. They'd only gone to the eighth grade themselves they had had mostly service jobs all of their career and they didn't really see the value of having a college degree and my oldest sister had gone to college she had been a first generation student but she loved college and she got married just before she graduated with her undergraduate Um, so my father who was very pragmatic thought that college was just an expensive way of finding a husband (laughs) And that, of course, was never my intent, but he did not offer me any financial support to go to college. Uh, So I was very fortunate. Living in Canada, I had access to scholarship funds and federal grants and loans, so I was able to start college. But he did give me something as I went off to college. He gave me a vacuum cleaner, which today I still laugh about because I think he was preparing me for some future as a wife (laughs) instead of going through college. But I I made a practical choice when I read for college. You know, I, I grew up in the time when computer science was becoming the in thing. So my teachers at high school said, Oh, you know, you're good in math, you should really become a computer scientist, because this is the up and coming field. And I went to the local university so I could save money and live at home. But as I was getting ready to go to college, I kept having a very uneasy feeling that I was making a mistake. Um, I had not really been that interested in computers. In high school, I loved art. It was my favorite class. And yes, I did well in all of my subjects, but art was what kept me going to school every day. Going into the studio, drawing, painting, hanging out with my friends who were interested in the same thing. So I changed my major literally a month before I started college. Once I was in college, then I went through, went through with art, but also studied other things like archaeology and classics that I that I was interested in. And I had a great time. I mean college is a blast. It's a time about becoming an adult, but I I took advantage of my summers to really get some good job experience, too. So I taught in summer art camps. Uh, I worked as an apprentice to a printmaker one summer. Um, I got involved in a, in a public art park development um, where I got to make copper etchings with a printmaker. Uh, so these were all great experiences very early in my career that led me into the art field.
1: Wow. I like art. I used to think art is about drawing pictures, but uh, it goes beyond that. your first 10 years of professional work were spent in the art industry. Help us understand what art is and how you came to work in this industry.
2: Sure. Well, when, when I'm talking about art, for me, working in the art sector was working in museums and galleries. So museums and galleries often collect art, um, exhibit art, but they're institutions that also care for art, particularly historical paintings or paintings that be, should be preserved and shown and shared with the public. My first real- job after college was working as a part-time educator in a public art gallery. And it was in a small town where most people weren't familiar with coming to a museum. Uh, so it was a really unusual type of position. So every month, a new exhibit of paintings or sculpture would be put on display. And my job was to tour elementary and secondary students through the exhibitions. Now, for most of these kids, it was their first time ever being in a museum. So part of my role was just to orient them to what the experience should be, what to expect when we enter the gallery, how to behave, the fact that they shouldn't run around, they shouldn't touch paintings. But most importantly, it was about connecting them and helping them feel and react to the art that was on display. Because these weren't meant to be just paintings on the wall. I tried to engage the students in the artwork itself. So using a questioning approach, an inquiry approach, I would guide them to look at the artwork, to describe it in terms of its color and shape and design, and then to it emotionally and connect to it. And then also connect what they saw to what they may have been learning in school. So perhaps they were looking at a painting from the 19th century that was a picture of their region. It might connect to something they were learning in a social studies class, for instance. And we also use critical thinking skills to observe and to evaluate art. Uh, and So that may have been my first connection to evaluation. Uh, but that part-time job eventually became a full-time job and it became a career that led led me to a senior management position in one of Canada's largest art museums. And I have to admit, it wasn't an entirely comfortable fit. I've mentioned I'd grown up in the home of a working class family. I was the daughter of a janitor. Um, I've been raised in a household where we didn't keep books. Uh, We had no art on our walls. Um, And suddenly I found myself working in the arts with people that had really grown up with a very different experience than I had. Um, But I learned. I, I adapted. And I had a great career working in Museums uh, first in Canada and then in the United States, and I got to do some amazing things. Uh, so I designed educational exhibitions that help people understand contemporary art and Indigenous art. I organized public events and festivals that engaged people with music, theater, and visual art. I got involved in the launch of one of the very early online art curricula. Um, this was back in the 1990s. I coordinated partnerships with schools and universities, and then later in my art career, I became very involved in developing uh, professional development and training programs for teachers to teach them how to utilize the resources of a museum for teaching and I also had the pleasure of working with some wonderful artists along the way it was a good life but then I did move into evaluation
1: Indeed. In fact, I want you to expound on how you became a professional evaluator.
2: Well, you know, the first time I called myself an evaluator was in 2010. Uh, But I have to admit, my first experiences in evaluation date back to the 1990s when I was still working in museums. So I mentioned I'd organized a few exhibitions. And I had the very interesting opportunity to work with a psychologist once to design and administer a survey to museum visitors. And the exhibit was focused on contemporary art and this contemporary art can be very challenging for some museum visitors they walk in they see a big colored square on the wall and their reaction is often well that's not art I could get out my roller I could make that so I worked very hard to try to make that connection for people uh, to help them appreciate contemporary art so in working with the psychologist we designed the survey we collected the data and together we published uh, a report so that was my my first entree into it and it for me unlocked a interests of connecting to evaluation, but specifically in an art museum setting. So the first thing I did, I joined a professional association of audience researchers. Um, There's a group called the Visitor Studies Association, which is based in the United States. And I I became very active with them. I attended their conferences. But then I joined another group called the Committee for Audience Research and Evaluation. That's part of the American Museums Association. And I became active on their board. I became one of of their regional representatives. But I still had a day job as an educator in a museum. Mm -hmm. Uh, But what happened, as often happens, uh, you know, accidentally I fell into an evaluation job. So my husband had taken a job in another state. We were living in Georgia in the United States at the time. And I ended up moving to Virginia with my family. And I thought, oh, no problem. I've been in the museum field 15 years. I'm not going to have any trouble finding a job. And I didn't. Even though I was surrounded by museums. It was just not a good time to be looking for work, and I was being very picky. I had had a lot of experience. I was looking for a particular type of job. So after a couple months, you know, I was. It was a little gut wrenching. It's always gut wrenching to be unemployed, and I just happened to see this ad on Craigslist for an educational research company that had just moved to the area. And I thought, well, that's really unusual. So I I interviewed with the director. We actually met at a Panera because at that point they didn't even have a um an office space and it turned out actually he was canadian um it was something we shared in common so it it felt a, a bit fortunate like like something was meant to be and there was a really good synergy there so i ended up walking into that position and was in that position off and on for a couple of years as a, as a contractor and that really gave me the opportunity for the first time full time to do research and that completely changed everything you know i'd been thinking about doing this for years but i been in another profession. I'd taken tentative steps, you know, by joining a professional association, by doing some work within my own job. But this was different. This was really stepping aside from my first career and firmly moving into my second career. And that sort of triggered a a whole lot of changes for me. So I I had completed my master's degree in education when I was still in Canada, but I I was given the bug then to start my PhD. Mm -hmm. And I did it part-time because I didn't want to give up working, I, I needed the income and I'll tell you that's a hard thing to do but I, I walked through it and I did it and and along the way I picked up a few mentors also in, in evaluation that really helped me along the way that provided guidance, that helped connect me to other people in the field and you know eventually I found myself exactly where I wanted to be which was working as a program evaluator at the National Endowment of the Arts.
1: Wow, I can see how you have got your first evaluative job and how you started continuing to be active in an association finding mentors to continue your own skills and in your newfound profession there's so many people who either think they're doing an evaluation job but their titles don't call the jobs as such others still think they're doing an evaluation by virtue of a role or responsibility when you look at your career and if you can sum it, knowing what you know about evaluation today, would you consider your earlier jobs to be inclined towards evaluation or have any evaluation trait?
2: Absolutely. Uh, so I would say definitely maybe five years into my um, art sector career, I was starting to do work. that would fit under evaluation, different aspects of it. So uh, one thing I'll explain, because I worked in education in, in the art field, I often designed educational programs and, and educational projects and initiatives and and so that forced me to develop a kind of a really deep understanding of how to design a program and you know at the time I would not have thought that was a transferable skill to you know what I perceived to be strictly a research position but when I stepped into evaluation and reflected back I realized how important program design and understanding program theory is to being an evaluator and even today this is probably the one area of my work that I feel most strongly about and I have the most confidence in. But even as art museum educator, I was developing logic models. I don't think I called them that at the time, but I would sketch out, you know, what were the inputs into my program? So what resources did I need? What were the key strategies and tactics I would use? And what was I trying to achieve? You know, what were the outcomes of the program? And when I would apply for funding, I would have to sketch all of this out and then also design ways of collecting outcome data to report back to my funder. So when I first entered the evaluation field when I first worked for that educational research firm, my primary job was actually writing grants (laughs) because of my experience I'd had in my other jobs. And it was a very easy transfer to all of a sudden begin to find funds to support evaluation work because there were so many parallels in program design. I would say one of the other big areas of crossover for me was stakeholder engagement. So as as an educator and as somebody who designed programs for institutions, I would often create Advisory groups to work with who would help advise on the audiences that I was trying to connect with, who would help me strategize um, again how to market, how to plan a program for it to be effective for that population. And as an evaluator, I actually use similar approaches. So if I'm conducting a large scale evaluation, I might develop a technical advisory group that often is composed of stakeholders to come in and advise on program design and on the best ways to collect data from those populations. So even though the topic of the conversation is different, it's stakeholder engagement. Uh, it's the same process I used as an educator.
1: Indeed, indeed. And uh, actually, that's so motivating because I may not be having an evaluation job by face value, like a monitoring and evaluation specialist or evaluator or researcher. It could be a program officer. I don't have to lose heart. There is something that I'm doing that can be a stepping stone to a full, full-blown evaluation career. When you look back the last 20, 30 years that you have worked, what are the top two to three skills you have found every evaluator should have and why? Good question. So
2: I I did want to give a plug here for the American Evaluation Association. They have a list of evaluator competencies that I I go back and revisit frequently. I, I also hire people that work in evaluation. So I always review these domains before I make a hire because it reminds me of the skill sets that I'm, I need to look for, um, and and they do have they have five domains. They talk about professional practice, methodology, understanding the context of the work, planning and management, and interpersonal skills. Now these are all important, but I'm going to stress the last two um, in in my comments. I have found that the planning and management piece, particularly when I'm because I'm working at a national level and my work often involves multiple sites, so I may be looking at you know sites across the country. Uh, it really Take strong management skills. So, in and again, this is something I learned in my previous work um, as somebody who designed programs and initiatives. So for me, projects begin with developing an evaluation plan. And as I mentioned, I often work with technical advisory groups to help inform the plan so that it's, it's strong. And then from there, it, there may be funding proposals that have to happen, or I may be contracting out the work to another evaluator. So it's writing a statement of the And then it's planning the project, the project timelines, the work plans, making work assignments to the staff team and coordinating the production of deliverables. So an evaluation project from start to finish can be a three-year process, particularly in a federal government setting where I have to go through kind of multiple layers to secure a budget, to secure permission to do the data collection. There's lots of steps involved. Um, So staying organized, having a well thought out project plan is essential. So I I wanted to emphasize that the other area that I think is really vital is interpersonal skills. Um, Again, I mentioned earlier about the importance of engaging with stakeholders and working with technical advisory groups. So being able to foster positive relationships and also build trust in an evaluation is critical. So when you are working with, you know, we call them evaluants, but they are the entities that are being evaluated. So in your setting, it, it might be working with communities or other governments for me I'm often working with arts organizations or you know regional groups that work with arts organizations and so when I come in from the federal government you know there's going to be an immediate sense of distrust in, in on many people's hearts because I'm here to evaluate them and it really sets up a negative tension that I really try my best to dispel because I don't see evaluation in a judgmental way I really see it as helping helping to create programs that are going to better serve our constituents, our, the, the people that are up, that are actually receiving the benefit of the program. So for me, that, that trust building is a very important piece of, of an evaluation. It's taking the time to get to know their needs, their interests, their expectations, taking the time to listen and incorporating their feedback into the, the evaluation design. For me, it's also about finding opportunities to engage those stakeholders in the work of the evaluation itself, whether again, helping with the planning, but it might be helping with the data collection or bringing preliminary findings back to that group and asking them to help me make sense of it and ultimately helping them deliver a, a report that they can share with their communities as well. Those skills are essential. So yes, we need to, we need to be good at our methods. We need to uh, follow professional practices. But to me, everything falls apart unless you develop really strong relationships through the evaluation process.
1: Wow. As an evaluator, you need to have technical skills. That's basic. But most importantly, you need to have soft skills. Because what your last one, relationship building, working well with others, those are really soft skills that will help you use your technical skills. And it's so interesting hearing you speak as a hiring manager. If I'm working with you, many times people will say, okay, fine. She's going to be asking a lot about my technical ability. But see, you appreciate that, but you're interested in my soft side will I be able to do the job? Thank you so much. Evaluators are not immune to obstacles that impaired their work. What is the biggest obstacle you have faced as a professional evaluator, and how did you overcome it?
2: Hmm. You know, this is a tough question to answer in in many ways, because sometimes the obstacles we face are incredibly complex. So I'm going to try to sketch out one obstacle that I faced. It was specific to uh, a large-scale federal evaluation, and I I won't talk about the agency in in this Sure. but the this this evaluation had a lot of visibility uh, so the White House right to the top of, of the federal government they were aware of this program and the program had had problems um, program had not worked as smoothly as it did and yet it was one of the the president's own initiatives something that he had been pushing while he was in federal government so I was hired sort of not knowing the history of what was going on with this program and I remember getting a phone call maybe two weeks into my job from somebody who was running the program and they said, oh, well, you know, we're, we're all ready now to, to go to the White House and have this discussion with one of the program staff, so you know, are you ready to go? And I'm like, whoa, I haven't even heard of this program. You, you're going to have to brief me. And so I got the briefing, but I really wasn't told some of the problems behind it until mm-hmm. we were on the phone with the White House representative who literally yelled at our team for about 10 minutes about everything that had gone wrong, including in the evaluation. So the evaluation had some fundamental flaws in it. Uh, and again, technically speaking, you need strong response rates um, if you're going to use surveys in an evaluation. And the first year of the evaluation, the survey uh, response rates have been weak. And because of that, you couldn't draw any conclusions. And yet this study had cost a lot of money. Um, I'm very cheap with my evaluation budgets. And, and this budget was probably five times more than I would have spent. On, on this evaluation. So I had to come in and fix this problem. And again, I had you know higher-ups in government sort of breathing down my neck. Uh, there was a lot of people within the agency who were very upset about what was going on. And the project team and the evaluation team that had been working on this, they were incredibly demoralized. It was overall just a very bad situation. So I, I had a really good director at that time who was sort of steering me when I first walked in. And so she she said you know the first thing we're going to do we're going to have like a day-long meeting we're going to bring all the parties together and we're going to try to figure out kind of best practices of how we should move forward and that's what we did and then from there i began to work more on a one-to-one basis with some of the key members and the first thing we did we built a logic model there had been a logic model built that wasn't very strong and i realized at that point that we actually had to do a full refresh of the evaluation plan because the plan wasn't aligned with the program that the two were disconnected and and so we Basically, we built the evaluation plan, and then I worked with the evaluation team one on one to try to figure out you know what the problems were, why were they having a bad response rate, and and so we made these adjustments to the plan. And this whole process took about a year. This was not an easy task. There was a lot of moving parts. There was a lot of entrenchment, but we eventually got to the point when we relaunched the evaluation and we hit our targets for response rate. Uh, So we did at the end have a successful evaluation, but it was. took basically an entire refresh of the evaluation plan. But again, this was where having good interpersonal skills, being able to work with all of those parties, and bringing good management skills to actually, again, take this whole planning process very large, (laughs) develop a new plan, do a complete refresh, and then move through the evaluation implementation. And we eventually got to where we needed to be.
1: Indeed, indeed. And in fact, I like your summary. When you're speaking through, I was reflecting on what you said earlier, the balance between the technical skills and the soft skills and now in the obstacle we have just described i see how you actually use your soft skills relationship building identify the key stakeholders work with them one-on-one and then do your technical work rebuilding the logical model and evaluation thank you evaluators like methods and tools in fact talking about evaluation you can't avoid tools you can't avoid methods what is the most important tool or method you have used or are using to improve your work
2: you may guess it just because of some of the things that i've already said <laughs> <laughs> theory of change and logic modeling are for me very key tools i tend as an evaluator to spend a lot of time in the program design phase so for me it's very much about trying to figure out how the program is supposed to work so um a theory of change permits the reader to understand the hypotheses of the program. So what is the program trying to accomplish? And from there, it's really developing this model of the key inputs, activities, strategies, and outcomes and really understanding how they all work together. So I'll share with you that um, you know, as an internal evaluator in a small agency, I often use theory of change and logic modeling to help program stakeholders actually articulate how their program is supposed to work. And Again, I often use a broad section of stakeholders to do this type of work. So bringing together staff, but also uh, partners, organizations that actually implement the strategies, other funders, as well as those people that are at the other end of the program who are actually benefiting from it. It's really only by bringing all parties together that you can really get a full picture of what a program is trying to accomplish. Just a quick example. I often find that in doing this type of work, it often brings a lot of clarity about what a program is supposed to be. And often as a result of that, a program is officially changed. So I've worked with several programs at my current agency, where in going through that process of developing a logic model, it's almost like I see the little light bulbs going off on top of the heads of our program staff who share, oh, you know, I don't think our program guidelines are right. I think we actually need to change our program guidelines to fit this model. And that usually stops work on evaluation at that point, because I always say a program should be stable for at least three to five years before we do an outcome evaluation but there's still a lot of value in doing this logic modeling work if only to bring clarity to for a future evaluation and to clarify the design of a program
1: indeed thank you Dr. Sheffer, a lot is going on around the world, especially in supporting young, emerging, and mid-experienced evaluators. And one of the issues is how to support the young ones, and meaning young in the profession, take the steps that many of you experienced evaluators have taken. What strategies should evaluators, especially emerging evaluators, about five years and less, take to grow their professional evaluation careers?
2: I would say number one for me was to join a professional association that's focused on evaluation. Mm-hmm. So if you recall, my in my early career, when I was still working in the art sector, I was actually engaged in evaluation associations at that time. Mm-hmm. Uh, and that helped kind of put me in that frame of mind. It helped build my confidence. It helped build my network. So I went from those groups. I later joined the American Evaluation Association, and from there, the Washington Evaluators. But the networking, the learning opportunities through these associations is so critically important. I would say the other uh, piece that's very important is to find a mentor. Spend time with people who hold positions you might want in the future. You know, in preparing for today's interview, I was reflecting on a colleague of mine in Toronto, Canada that I spent a lot of time with. I had great admiration for her. And I realize now that I'm doing the exact job she was doing when I knew her 20 years earlier. So I really picked up on all of those lessons and interests that she had shared with me so mentors can really help they can answer questions for you about how they train for their positions the career experiences they they had that basically took them to where they are today the last point i'll mention is something that i've learned now through two careers when you first enter a profession don't be afraid to move around you know often we're, we're told when we're being coached for our careers that it's important to get in a job and stay in a job um, you know stay there for five to ten years but when you're in a new profession and you're developing your, your skill set, it's actually not a good idea to stay long-term in a single position. I know for me, when I entered the evaluation field, I actually switched jobs, switched jobs probably two or three times within like the first five to six years, because I really wanted to learn from these different organizations. I really wanted that opportunity to develop expertise in different settings, whether it was working in a nonprofit organization or a for-profit company or a government agency. And I really feel that having that mix of positions has made me a lot stronger as an evaluator today than if I'd taken a job and stayed there for 10 years.
1: So you talked about associations, get mentors and be available, actually, and be bold to try out different evaluation settings, change jobs and pick a lot of skills around so that you can understand the nuts and bolts of the profession. Now I want to take you back to your first one on associations. You are a member of the American Evaluation Association and its affiliate Washington Evaluators. What role do professional evaluation associations play in an evaluator's professional life?
2: Professional associations are really invaluable for developing a network and staying informed about the field of evaluation. Evaluation is, to me, still an emerging field. It's not an old field. And as such, there's innovations that are happening all the time. Time in the field. So by joining a professional association, by attending their conferences, it really helps to keep you up-to-date with the new methods, with the, the new initiatives, including, for instance, uh, standards and competencies that evaluators are expected to hold. Um, I learned about those through the American Evaluation Association. It's also, um, many professional associations will share content and information that's really essential for career building. So when I first joined the American Evaluation Association and I was still new in the field um, I took advantage of a travel scholarship opportunity that they offered to attend my first AEA conference Uh, so so often these associations will they will connect you to funding or they'll connect you with job opportunities that may only be accessible through these professional associations they also offer learning opportunities so I mentioned the conferences but even a local affiliate such as the Washington evaluators provides opportunities for you to get engaged in discussions with evaluation leaders and participate in skill building workshops there's also opportunities to give back to your own field um, as a mentor or to benefit from receiving mentorship as godfrey you and, and i shared that experience together
1: absolutely and i can testify to the goodness of these evaluation associations so each one of you listening associations joining a professional association is a must for any evaluator who wants to grow Dr. Schiffer, we are privileged that you recently served as the president of Washington Evaluators. How is your career different today?
2: I I will say it's more than my career. I, it was in many ways a life-changing experience mm-hmm. uh, and I highly recommend getting involved in a professional association as a volunteer or in a leadership role. So I've been involved with Washington Evaluators since I think about 2017 as an active member of a committee. So I joined first as a committee. Chair and I was in that role for a couple of years, coordinating communications, our newsletters, our social media, and then I decided to take on the leadership role. And you know, for me, it was I think the first time I've actually held a president's position. I've often been involved on boards, usually in a like secretary or a treasurer role. So I, I began my president's term in January 2020, and I thought I was off to what would be a normal year <laughs> for our association. And of course, the the world as we knew it. Came to a screeching halt in March due to COVID. So, like many groups, we pivoted our activities, we moved our member services and activities online. And then in June, Black Lives Matter protests erupted across the country and in the DC area. Well, this this whole time, I mean, we've we've all sitting there during the pandemic just trying to figure out what was going on. You know, month after month we remained at home. But this social justice movement really touched me in a very different way. And I also realized there was an opportunity opportunity here to provoke change within Washington evaluators. Now, one of my favorite quotes I've used a lot in the last year is from Rahm Emanuel, who was a former chief of staff to President Obama. He said, never allow a good crisis to go to waste. It's an opportunity to do, to do the things you once thought were impossible. And I've really lived by that over the last year. So when the social justice protests began, uh, you know, I looked inward. One in my own behavior was anti-racist. And I looked at our organization. And I wasn't the only one. There was a lot of people on the board of Washington Evaluators who were asking these questions, who were wanting to have these discussions. So I asked one of our board members to coordinate an ad hoc task force on anti-racism. The task force did strong work. They developed a statement that would influence the organization's work going forward. We began to do more programming that focused on anti-racism to just raise the level of discussion within our membership. And then late last year, we contracted a consultant to work with our members to identify planning priorities for the organization, particularly to support our work to apply the principles of anti-racism to the Washington Evaluators Board and our programs and services. The board now under a strong new president is continuing this important work. So I would say what I took away was learning as a leader to be bold, um, find ways to take advantage of a bad situation and work towards something better. This is not the time to sit back and kind of ride out the wave. time to really jump on the way and ride it (laughs) and make change happen. And it's certainly a lesson I'll continue to apply to both my work and the career.
1: Indeed. And thank you for all your efforts and your service. It was a tough year. As we end this podcast, tell us about your big plan, personal organization for the rest of the year. What is cooking in your kitchen (laughs) professionally?
2: (laughs) Well, professionally um, at the National Endowment for the Arts, we have a lot going on. So we, of course, have a new administration, a new leadership in the federal government, and Mm -hmm. they bring with them a new set of priorities. And we, our office, um, is also charged with developing the strategic plan that will guide the agencies we're going forward. So even though this isn't quite a value work, it's an important part of what I do. So in my job, I I do wear multiple hats. So so as we move forward the planning process, we at this stage have just concluded a series of virtual town halls with agency staff, and we're collecting feedback as well from external stakeholders on what they perceive should be the agency's priorities over the next five years. So as part of this process, we identified an executive working group composed of staff from all sectors and levels of the agency, because they are key stakeholders um, for the plan. And this group will be sifting through the inputs that we receive from both our staff as well as our external stakeholders and ultimately developing strategic goals and objectives for the agency. So we'll be writing the draft plan this summer and then sharing the draft on our website for public comment. Um, Ultimately, the plan will be released in February of 2022, but alongside it, we're also developing measurement tools. So we will be preparing a performance plan that has indicators aligned to the strategic goals and objectives. We'll also be reviewing all of our data collection forms to make sure that they align with the performance plan. And we're also building a learning agenda, which will help establish for a five-year period analytical and evaluation priorities. Um, and if you're not familiar with a learning agenda, it's essentially a set of questions, as well as planned activities and products that help facilitate organizational learning and decision-making. So it may include grant portfolio reviews, dashboards, and other interactive tools that track performance, as well as capacity building work and small scale evaluation studies. So we have a lot going on this year.
1: it's a lot. And I know I didn't plan to ask you about learning agendas, but it's one of those trending uh, topics or addition or improvement to our evaluation dispensation. How has it been for you in terms of reception for your stakeholders, having a learning agenda?
2: It's still relatively new in our agency. We've used a learning agenda now for about two to three years. Mm -hmm. This is the first time we're aligning it with our strategic planning process. But Mm -hmm. I do find that we have to spend time sort of educating the, the staff of the agency about what a learning agenda is. Mm-hmm. So they're used to sort of coming to us with questions sort of off to the side. And through the learning agenda process, this whole process is much more transparent. So we put a call out for learning questions. We have a list of projects that gets vetted by our senior management. It's a very different process from the more ad hoc process that we used to use. Um, but it does help ensure that, again, we as an organization are a learning organization, that we're continually looking at our what our projects projects and programs are producing learning from them and bringing that forward to the very highest levels of the organization so that what we learn can actually be taken into agency
1: Dr. Schaeffer, how can people who want to get in touch with you find you? Well, they
2: can find me at the National Endowment for the Arts. We do have a staff directory there that does have my email address, but I'm also available on Twitter as well as LinkedIn. You can find me in either of those locations. My Twitter handle is at Edevaluator, so E-D Evaluator. And on LinkedIn, you just have to search by my name and you should find me.
1: And in the podcast notes, I will put those links below, your Twitter and LinkedIn address. I will also add the website for the National Endowment for Arts and people can always find you. Thank you so much. Is there any other idea you want to leave with us?
2: Just that it was a pleasure to get to know you Godfrey a couple years ago when we had a a mentoring relationship and the good thing about mentoring is that you learn as much from the mentee as the mentee learns from the mentor. Uh, So that's a final message I would like to suggest to everyone. Take advantage of those relationships. There's always an opportunity to learn.
1: Thank you, Dr. Sheffer. Everybody, if you want to grow your profession, Join an association, professional association. Take advantage of mentors. That's the only way you're going to grow. Balance skills. Technical is good. It's the basic, but soft skills are very important. Otherwise, a thank you. This is Godfrey Senkaba, your host, Monitoring and Evaluation Boost. This is it for today. Bye.
0: Thank you for listening to the Monitoring and Evaluation Boost with Godfrey Senkaba please let us know your comments or any topics you would like to hear. And please check out our website, www.mandeboost.com. If you have comments about this episode or experiences you would like to share regarding the ideas discussed in this podcast, please let us know. Again, please visit our website to share. That's www.mandeboost.com. Thank you.